Tonight, I think we come across a, a great, great picture of one of the very central tenets of what it means to, to believe in Jesus and to follow Him. Tonight, we're going to talk about something that can be quite trite. We're talking about love. And I know that you, if you've ever heard anything about Christianity, especially from the outside looking in, you're like, oh yeah, Christians, doesn't it say somewhere you're kind of supposed to like love your neighbors, you're supposed to love one another? And, uh, and that's really true, that is. But I think familiarity sometimes with something can make it irrelevant, if that makes sense. It takes the force out of something, the punch out of something, because something's heard over and over again. <laughs> so I would like for you to work hard tonight to hear something for the first time. Does that make sense? To hear something for the first time tonight. That Jesus is going to teach us tonight about what love is and why it is important. And it will reflect a little bit of what we looked at last night. But tonight, we're going to look at a new command that Jesus gives us. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, it's really hard. I, I know there have been seasons in my life where it's really, really hard to love, to love people. Especially when people hurt you and when they, they cut against the grain of who you are. I can remember one time when I was in seminary, I, I made my, my money. My job was I tutored. I uh, tutored high school students in the maths and the sciences. And I tutored this one family for really quite some time, a couple of years. And as I was leaving, uh, I, was, I was leaving the St. Louis area, this family had a massive balance that they owed me. And uh, they never did pay it. They skimped me out on several hundred bucks. And the thing was, is that they were Christians. And so was I. And uh, it was really, really hard for me to love them because they had wronged me. But it's not just people that have wronged me that are hard to love. You see, I'm actually, I actually have a hard heart, so I can, I can not love people well who've done nothing wrong to me. I'm reminded of another time when I was in seminary. A friend of mine named Stephen called me up one day and he said, Hey, would you like to go to watch a movie tonight? And I said, Yeah, man, that'd be great. It sounds awesome. But uh, I, like many of you, have FOMO, okay? And um, I love keeping my options open for the better deal that comes in. And lo and behold, right before the movie started, I got a phone call from somebody else to go out and do something else. And so I called Stephen and I said, hey, man, I'm sorry. I, I did not realize I'd made plans with somebody else. Total lie. Okay. And I'm not going to be able to go tonight with you and your thing. And, and, and he's like, oh, yeah, man, that's cool. Uh, we'll, we'll have to catch up some other time. I hung up the phone, I mean, immediately my conscience is just stinging me, right? Just killing me. You know what I'm talking about because you've done it. And, um, and so I immediately picked up the phone, I called him back, I said, man, listen, I'm so sorry. Uh, will you forgive me? Because I, not only did I lie to you, I was trying to find a better option. And if you'll still have me, I'd love to go watch a movie with you tonight. But then I had to call the other guy back and explain to him what I had done. I mean, I'm just a sorry mess. Like, that's in my heart, you know? That's really what goes on. It's really hard for me to love people sometimes. But I would venture to guess that I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one in this room that finds loving others hard. What about you? What about you and your world? See, for some of you, it's a roommate. You know, you know that roommate that, um, that can't keep their stuff clean? Uh, that's always messing up your stuff? Uh, or it's that roommate that always uh, kind of meets you with passive aggression? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Uh, that they say hard words to you and that it, it, it just makes life miserable. And maybe if you don't know that, that might be because you're that roommate. <laughs> so, so be careful, right? Uh, it's hard. And for others of you, you know what it's like. It's hard to love people in your family because people, um, 
People who are closest to us often leave us with the deepest hurts and the deepest wounds. So to try to be kind and loving to those people who have hurt us the most is a very, very hard and difficult thing to do. And I, and I actually want to suggest this too, that even if you're a Christian, it doesn't make those things easier or go away. I'm reminded often of how we as Christians can bicker and how we can fight with one another over trivial stuff. I also know as a Christian what it's like to be the recipient of like bad teaching and bad theology and bad pastoring and bad practice. And it can leave us very burned with respect to the church or with respect to Christianity. So we become cynical about that because of the ways that people have treated us throughout our life. And I actually want to suggest to you as well that it was just as hard for Jesus' followers too. I mean, those followers of Jesus as well. I mean, think about this for a moment. Two of his disciples wanted to know who could sit in his right hand and his left hand. And there was another series in the, in the gospel accounts where they're all bickering with one another over what? Over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. They're trying to one-up each other. Isn't that amazing? The, the founders of the church are fighting with one another over who will be great. And as we've just read tonight, the text began with one leaving out. Who was that one? It says here, after he had gone out, who was that? Well, that was Judas. And anybody that knows the story, what was about to happen? Jesus' own follower, Judas, was about to sell him out to the Jewish officials leading to his death. And then if that weren't bad enough, the followers of Jesus talk about love. What sort of love is this? That they would abandon him in his darkest hour. That when he needed them the most, they just fled. They skinned out of town, and not a one of them stuck around to defend their boy. That's the sort of love that his disciples leave us, uh, demonstrate. So I just want to say to you, loving is hard, right? Loving can be really, really hard. And what we often see in the scriptures, not only true of them, but true of us as well, is that genuine love for others really is incredibly difficult. That we don't love as we ought. Our ethics, the way that we live, they don't match our profession. So our actions don't match with our words. And you know what? We're just messes. But here's the good news, y'all. God thankfully speaks into that in this text tonight. He is going to show us a better way. He is going to fix, as it were, our broken love. And He will recover our love again to find a way that we ought to love one another. That's what this text is going to show us tonight. So let's walk through it together, can we? And let's learn a little bit about what Jesus is trying to teach us in this text. Turn your eyes to the text there in verse 31. Let's see what we first see. First of all, we're going to see that he loves a helpless people. What do I mean? Let's take a look here at verse 31. He says this, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Let's just take that verse and break it down. What Jesus is saying is this, is that Jesus is about to die, and in his death, God will be glorified. What that means is, is that Christ will be made much of, and the Father will be made much of as well, as Jesus dies and then raises again from the dead. That will be his glory moment. And as Christ goes through this death and this resurrection, what is happening is that God is putting on display his grandeur for the world to see. That's what it means when, that, when Christ is going to be glorified and the Father will be glorified with him. But notice what else he says in verse 32. He says, If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. But then verse 33. 
Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as you said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. And that's very, very important, because what is it telling us? Jesus is saying, y'all, I'm about to die. And I'm going to raise again from the dead. And then when I ascend to the Father, you can't come there yet. You can't come there yet. What was he getting at? Why would he say you can't come there yet? And here's what he was trying to get at. That there was a work that Jesus had to complete in his death and in his resurrection that was going to open the way, that was going to open the way for his disciples to actually go where he was going. Does that make sense? So he was going to have to go do something for that. Now that's very important because it means this. It means that therefore, if Jesus has to go do a work for them, it means that they cannot save themselves. That they are helpless. That they are helpless to find a way in with the Father. And Jesus is telling them, unless I go do this work, you cannot enter in to the joy of my Father, to the glory of the Father. The Gospel tells us, this good news that Jesus has come to die for us, that we cannot earn our salvation. And I would like to say this, that many people, and maybe even some of you in this room, actually think that you can. You see, you think, and I would suggest to you that we need to rethink this, but you think that trying to find favor with God is like a divine tryout. You know what I'm talking about, about a tryout? You know, you go and you sort of apply your skills, you show the world what you've got, and then you're accepted. So thinking about like a sports team or something like that. A lot of us think the same way with God. You know, if I do the good things, if I stay away from the bad things, and I'm better than other people, then guess what? you got to receive me in. Because look at my clean record here, right? Does that make sense? Or another way of thinking about it, instead of a tryout, is like scales. Okay? And we think that at the end of the day, what God is going to do, He's going to look at our life, and He's going to measure out the good things that we've done, and He's going to measure them up against the bad things that we've done. We can be honest. Sure, I'm having bad things. Sure, I've got good things. But really what matters at the end of the day is that the good that I have done slightly outweighs just a fraction or a hair more the, the bad that I've done in my life. And a lot of us think in that ledger mentality. And what God is just showing us here is that, no, that won't work either. That's not the way He works. You see, it's very, very important to understand. The Bible says that our hearts actually don't want God. Our hearts don't want God. And so the way that, that fleshes itself out, perhaps, is, you know, yeah, we may speak ill against our friends, we might use each other sexually in ways that we shouldn't. We may become greedy with our money or whatever fill in the blank is. But all that is coming from a heart that's basically, if I can speak frankly, that's given God the finger. It said, I don't want you. I don't want your hands on my life. And I want nothing to do with you. And you see, what lies at the core then of sin is not so much doing bad things or having to account or to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. But it's that we actually need new hearts. Another illustration to perhaps drive this home. A lot of us think that what we need to do is to, it's the illustration, imagine, let me just imagine this. Imagine you're standing at the cusp of the Grand Canyon. And these three guys are standing there like, they're like, come on, man, let's jump across. Let's do it. Let's do it. And then the heavyset fellow, right, he's like, Man, there's no way. I can't jump across that thing. And they're like, come on, try it. Come on, try it. And he runs off the edge, and he like stumbles the edge. He's out of breath, and he just sort of rolls down into the canyon to his death, right? 
And there's maybe a more average, more fit fella. And he begins to run. He sprints as fast as he can. He gets a good long jump. And he goes out all of like five feet. And he plummets to his death. And then, then, then they were all friends. I didn't tell you this. They were friends with the Olympic gold medalist long jumper. And he comes off that edge and flies out farther than any of them. It's amazing. All of 27 feet. And then guess what happens? He falls to his death. Because why? Because the gap is too big. It doesn't matter how good you are. And what this is telling us is this, is that all of us, all of us, are actually helpless like that. That we've fallen into the canyon of our own self-righteousness, even to our own deaths. And what Jesus is saying here is that we can't do it. And unless God in His grace, unless His God, God in His grace moves, we cannot find a way in to the Father. You have to see that first, or none of this makes any sense. But I want to show you something else here. Did you notice what happened in verse 35? It says this, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And you're going, what? By what? By what? And here it is in verse 34. Just as I have loved you. That's a key phrase. Because what Jesus is going to say is, is that I want you to love like I've loved you. So let's take a moment and explore that. What is he talking about when he says he wants the way that he's loved us? You see... Christ is going to die, and that is going to be his glorif- being, Him being glorified. But John wants you to see, and I want you all to see this too. John doesn't want you to see that just that Jesus is going to die. The, the fact of it, that He's going to. He wants you to understand why. He wants you to understand why He is going to die. And He tells us, it's because he wants to rescue all of the people who have crashed into the canyon of their own self-righteousness. He wants to help the people who cannot help themselves. You see, he wants to reach out to those and to love, ready? He has profound love for rejects, people like you, people like me. These are the only people that Jesus ever saves. And that's what he wants us to see because that is all there is. Listen, y'all, here's what I want you to see. That God is telling us in the person of Jesus that the reason that He has come is to demonstrate His love for us in this. That while we were perfect, Jesus died for us. No. No. While we we were better than our friends, Jesus came to die for us. Nope, not that either. Romans 5.8 tells us that while we were still sinners... Christ came and died for us. He comes to die for the imperfect, not the perfect, not the people that have it all together, the people that don't. And that is incredibly good news because so much of what we see in Christianity is what? Keep it together. Put on the outward face. Make your life appear as perfect. But it's not only that. It's like do good stuff so that you can appear as perfect. And Jesus is saying, are y'all tired yet? You know, are you worn out? Are you frustrated? Come to me. I know how to deal with that. And I can bring you life. I can give it to you. Now, some of you are going to hear this and say, I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I like that idea. Because what you're saying is, is that Jesus has to die for sinners. And if that's the case, then what you're saying about me is that I'm a sinner. And I don't like the idea of sin. Let me tell you why. 
Because hasn't modern, hasn't this, if, 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 the, if, the, if the psychology movement of the 1900s taught us anything, isn't it that sin is just a social construct that doesn't really exist in the lives of people, but it's something that's been put onto people from a religious system? It's a great question, I think. It's one that needs to be considered. But in the early 1970s, a, a psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Carl Menninger, he wrote a book called Whatever Became a Sin. And the thesis of his book was is this, was that we have done a great job of, of limiting and pulling out the concept of sin from our lives because we don't like it, because it implicates us in some way. You know, it implicates means it, it makes us guilty. Okay? Now, what they're saying is, so now we're left with these ideas like malad- you're, you're, you're maladapted, right? Or, you've got, or other people have got problems on you, but you're not the problem. And what was interesting is, and his thesis was this, was that when you remove the concept of sin from our vernacular and from our world, you actually ended up with people who were more anxious, who were more worried, who were more psychologically unstable because they didn't have a way of naming and categorizing something that they knew deep within was really there. So I would like to suggest to you we actually need a doctrine of sin. We actually need it. So why? Why? So that you can understand a doctrine of grace. You see, you throw away, you throw away the bad news about you. You'll never understand the gospel. It will never be sweet to you until it is first bitter. Think about it like this. Imagine you go to the doctor. The doctor says, we've got a reason for why your stomach is hurting you. You actually have stomach cancer. Now imagine you said, you know what? Despite the best medical evidence telling me what I've got, I am going to continue to believe that it's really just a stomach ache. And I'm going to take like some Pepto-Bismol and hopefully that will fix everything. If you did that, what happens? What happens? One of two things. First of all, you've cut yourself off from a real remedy because it can be treated and you can be healed. But secondly, it means when that cancer goes full bloom, what's going to happen? You're going to die. It's going to get you. Why? Because you think that you have a best, better assessment of things than what, the script, than what the doctor is saying. The same thing goes for us. Will we let the Scriptures speak about us the hard things? Because if they do, there is real rich mercy and grace to us that comes to us in Jesus. Because Jesus says to us, I have come for the unlovable. I have come for those who can't keep their life together. I have come for the helpless. That is who I delight in rescuing and saving. You see, here's what Jesus is trying to tell us, y'all. He is trying to show us a better way. He is trying to say, I am the one that resolves the tension in your life that you have for sin by dying for it. Therefore, love, y'all listen. Therefore, love always tells the truth about who we are. It pulls no punches. It always goes there. Grace goes down smooth, but it kicks your teeth in on the way down because it must deliver hard news about you first. Listen to what one pastor, Tim Keller, puts how he puts it in his book on marriage. He says this, Love without truth is sentimentality. That's all it is. It's a, call, it's a hallmark card. Love without truth is sentimentality. And he says this, it supports and affirms us, but it keeps us in denial about our flaws. But truth 
without love is harshness. It gives us information in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, listen, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are, yet also radical unconditional commitment to us. And that is beautiful. Because it always tells us that we are more messed up than we ever thought. But we are more loved than you ever dared imagine at the same time. That is what Jesus is trying to tell us here. And I want to put a fine point on it like this. He's going to say this, that once that love comes crashing into your life, it changes you. It radically changes you. It goes down to the DNA of your heart. It goes to the mainframe or the the CPU, whatever that is. I'm I'm not a, a computer guy, but it reorients the very structure of your heart such that you now begin to love others. If I could put a fine point on it, and here's the main point I'm trying to drive home for all of my message. This is it for you note takers. Here it is. Loved people love people. Loved people love people. The people that Christ has loved and given His life for, those people then move out into the world and love and give their lives away in the same way that Jesus has done for them. And because of that, y'all, I want to begin to press some things upon you. Do you, see, do you remember the golden rule that Jesus tells us? You've heard it a hundred different times if you've been anywhere around any sort of religion because it shows up everywhere. But it basically is this. Jesus says this. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. It's just a way of saying this is what the whole Old Testament is about. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for them. And you go... However, however somebody, however I want to be treated, right? Whatever I want to be treated, I ought to treat people that way because that's, because that's, the, that's the way I want to be treated. But Jesus is actually saying here in John, I don't want the motivation for the way that you treat somebody to be how they would treat you. Instead, He says this, I give you a new command, as I have loved you so love one another. Now that's utterly earth-shaking because it means the motivation for anybody who's a Christian is you and I must begin to see that Christ is giving us an example. He's saying, I want you to love like I've loved. And that is, um, that is amazingly beautiful stuff. The world absolutely needs to hear it. Y'all remember this one point in uh, the, book of, the book of Luke. There is a prostitute that has come and met Jesus She has given herself away to men more times than you can possibly count. She is now at Jesus' feet, crying, weeping at His toes because she has come into contact with His radical mercy in her life. And Jesus looks around at all the religious leaders, all the religious PhDs, all the people that are sort of living the good life, and He says unto them, He says, This woman here, listen to me, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. But he is forgiven little, loves little. The point is this. Jesus is saying, your life must reflect the forgiveness that you have been, that you have been extended in Jesus. But what that means then, y'all, practically, is that you are now free to love people across the aisle from you. 
wherever the line is, whatever you think, whoever they are, you're actually able to give yourself to them for their good. So we're in the middle of an election season. I don't really know what side of the political aisle you fall on. But if you are a Christian, do you see what Jesus is saying to you? You must love people who are different than you. You must give yourself for their good. You see, if you're in a, a, a Greek organization on campus, and then some of you aren't, how do, y'all, how do you relate to one another? How do, you, how do you deal with that? The gospel is calling us to guess what? You must love. You have a higher calling than your Greek letters or non-Greek letters. Some of you are saying, well, what about, what about like other things? What about things like race? What about things like sexual orientation? What about things like age and cultural upbringing? All of that gets shattered underneath the gospel because Jesus is saying, go and love. Go and, because here's why. What if Jesus pulled up? What if he pulled up the reins and said, whoa, that Ryan, he's a little too blank. Or that whoever, she's a little too blank. I won't go there. You see? Then what hope would any of us have? This much. Zero. And y'all listen. If you are a Christian and you make X the barrier, whatever it is, the barrier that you won't cross, do you understand what you are saying about Jesus? Do you understand what you're saying about him? If you say, I can't love a Republican, I can't love a Democrat, do you understand what you are saying if you are a follower of Christ? You are saying this, that Jesus doesn't love that person. That Jesus can't love that person. And Jesus says, no, you must begin to go across the line. You must go across the aisle because I have gone across the aisle for you. Staggering. Staggering news there for us. It's very, very wonderful. And what he wants you to see is, is that the failure to do so means this. If we do not love like this, y'all, it means one of two things is at play. One, it means that you've never come into the contact with the gospel in the first place. That you've never understood it. How do I know that? Remember the lady? Remember the Pharisee? Remember the lady washing Jesus' feet? Here's what Jesus said. I'm just going to read it back to you. He says... But he who is forgiven little loves little. If you don't love well, it means you've not understood the forgiveness that Christ has extended to you. That's what he's talking about. You've loved little because you've been forgiven little, which means your sin remains. Secondly, the other thing is this. It either means that or it means you don't realize the resources that you have. And I think that's what happens for most of us. We forget the power. We forget what the truth of the gospel is, is that Christ has loved us, that we might be able to love other people. Loved people love people. It's like we're sitting with a bank account with $5 billion in it, right? And you're like, somebody tells you one day, you've got $5 billion in the bank. And you're like, what's the account number? And they say, I don't know. You've got all these resources, but you can't get to it. That's what happens for most of us. We forget. We're not able, we're not accessing, we're not drawing on those real promises that Jesus has given to us. Y'all, Jesus is going to close by showing us this, that the watching world will be drawn to Christ by how well we love one another. Plain and simple. How you love your, how you give your life away in costly love to one another. The world watches that. The onlooking world watches that 
and their hearts are changed because they see something about the grace of Jesus to them in the way that you love one another. And how does, God, how does Jesus love? How does He do that? Remember, you were so loved. You were so loved that God died for you. God died for you. In other words, here it is. It is absolutely undeserved. That's the love that you have in Jesus. But it means the second thing too. That you were so sinful. That God died. God died for you. And what that means is, is that love is costly. And therefore, for us to go out into the world, to give ourselves away in love will be the exact same thing in undeserved, costly ways. You see that? Undeserved, costly ways to one another. I'll share with two quick snippets, and I'll, and I'll close it with this. There was, a, there was a famous preacher whose name was John Chrysostom. Um, he, was a, he was actually Greek. And uh, we preachers like him because his nickname was Golden Tongue. I think that's brilliant. His nickname was Golden Tongues. Anyways, random thought, just wonderful. You can come with a, if you came up with a preacher name for me and you're like, that guy's name is Golden Tongue, that would be pretty cool. But here it is. Listen to what he says. When the outsider, the outsider, when the non-Christian sees Christians ambitious for power and enslaved by the other passions... He will remain, that is the unbeliever, will remain more fixed in his own beliefs since he entertains no exalted opinion of us. Indeed, we, we are responsible for their remaining in error. For they have long since come, over, come to despise their own teachings and at the same time to admire ours, but are kept from them by our lives." When they observe us attacking our neighbors more savagely than any wild beast, they call us the plague of the world. These things hold the unbelievers, or he writes the word, he, these people hold the pagans back and do not permit them to come over to us. Boy, that's so good. It's such a call to how we're loving one another. And I want to close with this thing. I knew a uh, senior in college uh, once, uh, y- Y'all, um, this is none of you, okay? That they, they were on the outside. And this, this, this student's roommates were really involved with the campus ministry on campus. And this student's roommates, their friends, loved each other well. They spoke highly of one another. They respected one another. They didn't cut each other down. They served one another. And they began to invite that student into their fellowship, into their world to come and see what life around Jesus was really like. And that person, that student ended up, believe it or not, they became a Christian because of the way that the community displayed God's love to one another. And you know how I know that? It's because it was me. It's because it was me. That's the way that God works. He will use the love that Christians have for one another to draw people to Himself. Loved people, love people. You have been loved in Christ. Now go. Go love. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank You for Your grace to us. Thank You that You have loved us. Thank You that You give us the courage and the strength to be able to love like You have loved us in costly and undeserving ways. We pray, O Lord, that You would take these things and make them 
real in our hearts and deep in our hearts. We pray this, that people might come to know Christ, that they might come to know His saving mercies and His grace. And we ask this all in your name. Amen.